So thankful for the opportunity to sing together. Kids, I want to let you know, I enjoy hearing you sing on Sunday morning. That's why we keep you in for the song service so you can learn these songs of the truth. And, uh, and especially when the instruments aren't playing, if you listen carefully, you can hear those children's voices singing out loud. What a wonderful blessing that is. If you're in first or third grade, you can slip out now to our children's church time. If you're visiting with us, we have a children's church for first or third graders. You can pick them up immediately out these doors here in the uh, hallway, just on the classroom to the left. The rest of us are turning to John chapter 3. John chapter 3 this morning. I must say that when I made the decision about a year and a half ago to preach through the gospel of John, it was this chapter that I looked forward to with excitement, but also approached with fear and trembling in some ways. As this has been referred to as one of the most consequential chapters in regards to salvation in the Scriptures. It's the most famous chapter holding the most famous verse today, John chapter 3, in verse 16. We won't rush to get there, though, because I think without a proper understanding of John chapter 3, verses 1 through 15... Surely we can understand John 3.16, but perhaps the depth of meaning and the implications given could not be fully grasped. And so we'll take our time looking through John chapter 3 this morning, just dealing, we'll read down through verse 15, but this morning just dealing with verses 1 through 3, so we understand what God has for us. There's nothing uh, more exciting uh, in our church family often than the birth of a child. We send out the announcement um, I try to get there as soon as possible to, to hold that child. Not because there's any sort of spiritual blessing or grace that is somehow given to the child through my presence. I would like to think that's true, but sometimes it's actually the opposite as I hold the child and they immediately begin to scream. Uh, but uh, because I love to take a picture and text it to the grandparents who haven't seen their baby yet. And yet, here I am and can brag a little bit, especially with the generations that are here, often I can get to the bedside first and we have a little joke as sometimes even they'll let me in the room early because I'm a pastor and I can, you know, use the whole clergy thing as, a, as leverage to see that baby. But get in there and to pray and to, to visit with those uh, new parents and uh, to send out the announcement to the church that this baby has come and then the anticipation of, well, when will that mom come to church and if she has... Uh, a little bit of sense, she may, I shouldn't say it that way, more than likely the mom will wait a couple of weeks to, uh, to, to, to bring that baby to church because many of you with colds are going to go and try to touch the baby anyway, you know, and so uh, when, when that baby shows up, you know, it's, there are smiles all around. And every time a baby is born into our church family, we are reminded that we have the responsibility to pass the promise to the next generation. And I hope that as you see babies and children uh, as a part of our ministry, whether they are making noise in the service or they might um, uh, walk a little too briskly for your taste in the hallways, you need to remember that children are a reminder that we are to pass on the truth of Scripture to the next generation. And what a blessing it is to have 
to have a church that has new life breathed into it often. And even uh, ladies who are with child now and looking forward to that. If you can't tell, I love it when babies are born. Uh, in our family, we call them fresh babies, right? When they're still wrinkly and red and, uh, and, and the little squeaks that come from them. But I say all that to say, as exciting as it is when a, when a child is born into a family or perhaps one of your friends has a child or perhaps someone in your extended family has a child, um, we must remember that the best demonstration of the power of God is when someone is rebirthed into God's family. The, the greatest demonstration of God's power, the greatest demonstration, is when God takes a, a living human who is dead spiritually and infuses his very life into them. And so... When, when we see children in our ministry, we need to be reminded of the new birth and would pray that that child will have the life of God breathed into them at a young age. And so I open up my sermon with the concept of the birth of a child because that is the the illustration that Jesus chooses to use in John chapter 3. It's not the only illustration of the new birth, or, or we should say of the, the theological concept of regeneration, which we all often refer to as the new birth and should. Peter uses a, an illustration that's different. Throughout the writings of Paul, you see the illustration of maybe the resurrection to life or the seed of God being planted in the person. But as Jesus explains this concept, Jesus chooses to use the illustration very specifically, he chooses to use the picture of, of a birth. And so we will also be tying this concept to that in John chapter 3. We're going to spend the next several weeks looking at John chapter 3 as we pull apart the text to see what God would have for us. With that in mind, let's read carefully verses 1 through 15, and then we'll ask the Lord to bless our time together. John chapter 3 and verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him. Notice that Nicodemus didn't ask a question, but Jesus still answered. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is 
with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how how can these things be? Jesus, explain this mystery. Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you don't understand these things? In other words, you know the Bible so well and you don't even understand what I'm telling you? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. I've told you earthly things and you do not believe. How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son and whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Heavenly Father, as we look into these verses this morning, would you give us eyes to see truth that we may not be deceived with what we see in this physical world, nor may we be sidetracked or obsessed with the evidence of spiritual things that we see in this world. But may we be convinced of spiritual truth. May we have life breathed into us that life of salvation, that spiritual regeneration. May that light renew our hearts and may we see your word as it is this morning. And I pray that as your word is proclaimed this morning, if there's someone here who's not a Christian, that you would work your mysterious work of breathing life into the dead soul. As we pray through the only name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. We're only going to deal with verses 1 through 3 this morning as we look at what John is helping us see in his treatise that will go all the way through chapter 20 and that these things are written that you may know that Jesus is the Son of God. And as he's As John is writing, remember he is called in chapter 1 witnesses to the stand to testify of Jesus' deity. And then he gives Jesus' own evidence that he is here to replace the the filth of the, the legalistic, pharisaical Judaism that had risen in that day with the true wine of Christ, with the wine of truth. And now here, John is going to begin in the next several chapters in showing us what it looks like when Jesus explains this truth to certain people in certain stages. And so we have Nicodemus in chapter 3, we have the woman at the well in chapter 4, we have the Roman official in, in, in chapter 4 and chapter 5, and then we're going to continue to see these pictures of different people and how they respond based on their background. That's very important to understand because it is appropriate to just quote certain passages of Scripture and certain verses of Scripture. I never want to 
I never want to make you afraid of just quoting verses, but we have to understand what those verses mean and what the author's intent was in giving us those verses and use them in an appropriate manner. And so with the understanding that what John is doing is he's saying, here's the message given to Nicodemus and how Nicodemus responded. Here's the message given to the woman at the well in chapter 4. We go on and on, but let's just use those two to contrast. We've got a, a, uh, a, a, a religious leader who is the most moral of the moral, you could say the most conservative of the the most conservative, uh, the most legalistic of the legalistic, and then you have the opposite of that, you have the woman at the well who is currently living with someone who she's not married to, but she's had four husbands before that. And so you have this contrast that John is going to give us, because remember, these scriptures were not written with chapter and verse designations we have given that to scripture so we can understand the paragraph breaks and so we can reference it so i don't have to say you know turn to the second page of john and 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 as you read you're going to find the sentence we can reference these things but this book is given to us as a treatise and so when we see john and his contrasting and comparing both between Jesus's interaction with Nicodemus and saying you must be born again of water and the spirit and we see the woman at the well and Jesus says you have to worship in spirit and in truth and I'm giving you living water you see the same message that's given but it's it's people in two different life contexts responding to the same message you see that and so I think one thing that's going to be very important for us to understand One piece of information that we need is that Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus as the ruler of the Jews, the teacher of the Jews, an intimate knowledge, probably having memorized much of the Old Testament. And so Jesus leverages Old Testament over and over again to show Nicodemus that Jesus is from Yahweh, that he's from the God of the Old Testament, and he carries with him the same message. It's very important for us to understand, because if we're not careful, we pull John 3 out of context, and we read it from a, you know, from an, a Western perspective and impose all this Western stuff on the text, and we miss what Jesus is trying to communicate to to Nicodemus. Do we get the overarching message wrong? No. Look to Jesus and be saved. But friends, if we look with with careful eyes, you will see that this chapter will blow you away. And then all of a sudden you get to verse 16 and you go, oh my goodness. I see what John's doing. It's no longer just a verse that I memorized when I was four. It's given in this treatise from Jesus about the new birth. So with that in mind, let's look at verse 1 and let's look at the sinner's identity. The sinner's identity. I'm going to reference him twice as a sinner. The sinner's identity and then the sinner's question because we need to understand that even though Nicodemus had a human-based righteousness. Not a biblical righteousness, as we would see, but a human-based righteousness like Paul before his conversion. He is still a sinner just like the woman at the well. They are the same. You know, sometimes um, in our witnessing, we may look at, at people 
and, and maybe want to guess various degrees of how close they are to being saved, right? Like, uh, like, like maybe Julie over here. Julie, man, she was raised in a Christian home. She's a really good person. And so she's like a seven on the scale of 10 as to how likely she is to be saved and how she's like almost got it, right? She's, she's almost a Christian. But then Bobby over here, whoo, he's, he's like a one. And if there was something less than one, maybe he's a 0.5. Right, because he didn't know anything about God. He didn't know anything about the gospel. He, I mean, he probably hates the Bible. He's never been in church. And we grade people like that, don't we sometimes? And what Jesus is referencing in these two, ver- in these two chapters and with Nicodemus and with the woman at the well is that they're the same. They both are dead in their trespasses and sins. They both are far from God spiritually. They both are sinners in need of a Savior. The same status. And so it's important for us to recognize that Nicodemus is a sinner, so I'm just going to call him the sinner. hope he's not offended by that, but uh, that's how we're going to refer to him to make sure we understand that this morning. So let's see the sinner's identity. Verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. And so the first thing I want you to see about this sinner is that this sinner is actually a sign seeker. That's a, that's a, that's a mouthful, right? This sinner is a sign seeker. What do you mean, Pastor Joe, he's a sign seeker? Well, if we read carefully we'll note that John isn't leaving a a previous conversation in order to introduce Nicodemus. Look at the very first word. It's the word hain, now. John wants you to see that Nicodemus is an illustration of the people he just talked about at the end of chapter 2. Look at verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing, but they, these are not people who have complete faith, because even though they see the sign, their faith is wrapped up in seeing the sign. And what does Nicodemus say? We know you're a teacher because no one can do these signs. He's drawing a parallel here, that Nicodemus has been seeing Jesus, and he sees him, but he doesn't have the faith of the truth yet. I believe he'll come to faith later in the gospel. But he's a sign seeker. He's also a law lover. The Pharisees were a group of men who dedicated themselves to obeying not only the law of God, but as many different laws that they could come up with that they think maybe if God would have got it right in the law, these laws should have been in there as well, so we're going to equate these with God's law. Now there was a man of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were looked up to as the most holy, the most dedicated, the most serious about their spiritual walk. And people looked at them and they thought, man, that person is really serious about God because look at all the things they obey. Look at all the things they do. The law of God wasn't enough for them, so they invented another 200 laws, and they say, you know what? God's rules aren't enough. I need to add to that to show how, how spiritual I actually am. We have the tendency to do the same thing. We look at people, don't we? Oh, man, look at that person. He's a really good Christian. Why is he such a Christian? Because he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't. 
She doesn't. She doesn't. She doesn't. Man, she's a really good Christian. It's kind of like, you know, we, we, we tend to approach Christianity like some sort of diet, you know? Oh, I don't eat sugar. I don't eat fat. I don't eat anything. I only eat what's healthy for me. Wow, you're a really healthy person. And so we approach our Christian life for some reason in the same way. You're a really good Christian because you don't, you don't, you don't, you don't, you don't. Or you do, you do, you do, you do, you do. And that was the mistake that the first century Christians made. The first century Jews, when they looked at these Pharisees, they were like, wow. They only wear certain long robes. They have the Bible because they want to keep it on their mind. They tie it around their head and literally keep it on their mind. It's true statements, what they did. You know, they have a little book and they would tie it to their, to their headdress or to their head to make them more spiritual. They would wash their hands a certain way before they ate. So there was this idea that Nicodemus, man, he was the best of the best because when you looked at his life, he evidenced so many do's and don'ts. Mark chapter 7 deals with this specifically, and he says something interesting. Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him, some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate hands that were defiled. They were unwashed. We're not talking about dirty hands. We're talking about uh, keeping the law of the Pharisees and ceremonially washing your hands in order to keep what they saw was scriptural, even though this, the Bible never says anything about that. Verse 3, For the Pharisees and all the Jews did not eat unless they washed their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy, you hypocrites, as it's written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me, Teachings, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Listen carefully to what Jesus says. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother. Whoever... And whoever reviles your father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you've gained from me is Corbin that's given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. Thus, listen carefully, I'll explain that. Making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down. And here's what Jesus is saying. You think you have improved God's message by adding to it, but you've actually made void God's message by adding to it because the gospel can't be added to. You think that by adding on all of these extra rules and regulations about being a Christian, by adding on all of these things that you think makes you more loved by God, you think it actually enhances your spiritual life, but you are actually negating the very truth of God. That you have made void the gospel by your additions, friends. Don't add to the gospel. Don't think that you have some sort of pious spirituality because you've thought of all of these ways that Scripture never outlines that somehow need to be a part of the Christian life and you're going to impose your traditions on others. Is there anything wrong with traditions? No. I love traditions. We do things the way we do it for a very specific way. But if you did it the same way we did it, you'd be nuts because it's my family. It's family rules, right? 
In our house, you know, we have you take your shoes off when you come into our house. Not because it's most holy ground, like the burning bush, because it's where the pastor lives, right? No. Because we want to keep the floors clean. And we've got six people in our home who are constantly running out and running in. And if you have six people in your house who are outside and inside and outside and inside and close the door, you know? And you got your shoes on, you got track mud everywhere. So take your shoes off. But if I come to your house and you don't have me take my shoes off, I don't care. I'll probably be <laughs> super excited. I'll have to untie my shoes and tie them when I'm done, right? Because it's a quote-unquote tradition. It's what we do, but it's not what the Bible requires. And so once again, like we said last week, when you say the Bible says, you better be sure the Bible says. And when you say, I do this because I'm a child of God, you better be very sure that it's what Scripture says. Because when you add to the gospel, you negate the gospel. And so this Pharisee, Nicodemus, was the most moral of the moral. He was a law lover, but he was also a towering teacher. Verse 1 tells us that he was a ruler of the Jews. A ruler of the Jews. What do we know about Nicodemus? Well, we know what John tells us here. Uh, we also will see him pop back up in chapter 7. We'll see him pop up in chapter 19. I believe chapter 19 gives us some evidence that uh, Nicodemus eventually was born again. I do not think that John 3 was that moment. I don't think this is the moment of his conversion. Because John 3 is not a how-to on how to be saved. It's an explanation of what the new birth is. It doesn't mean it can't tell you how to be saved, but it's not written as a how-to guide. Verse 10, uh, verse 1, let's look at ruler of the Jews first. What does ruler of the Jews mean at the end of verse 1? It means that Nicodemus sat on the council of what was called the Sanhedrin. He, sat, he was a member of the Sanhedrin. Who were the Sanhedrin? The Sanhedrin were the governing body of the Jews who enforced the law, ruled the Jews, and made the laws. So they would serve as a combination of our executive branch and our judicial branch kind of combined together. You could say if you could take the powers of the president and the powers of the Supreme Court and combine, combine them together into one group of people, actually the legislative branch together, the Senate and the House and everything, if you combine them into one group, that's who the Sanhedrin were. They were extremely powerful, extremely influential, they were the ones who determined everything in Israel. They were the final say. And so here we see Nicodemus is a member. It's, it's, in a, it's not enough to say he was a member of the Supreme Court. He was a member of, of the governing body of the Jews, period. Both spiritual and in law. Not only that, look at verse 10. Look at verse 10. Jesus refers, when he's talking to Nicodemus, which is another reason why we know that Jesus is tying in the Old Testament so much, he continues to pull in all these Old Testament references and allusions. He says this, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? 
That, that phrase, the teacher, is very important because it has the definite article not only in our English translations but also in the Greek. It gives you the definite article. He's not saying you're one of the teachers. He's saying you are the teacher in Jerusalem. The teacher. So in Jerusalem, if you were to go and you were to say, I want to talk to the teacher, they would say, well, Nicodemus is over that way. He's the guy. The one. The teacher, not just in Jerusalem, but the teacher of who in verse 10? He's the teacher of Israel. He's the teacher of God's people. He is the one that people look to for Scripture. And this is a key point to understanding Nicodemus' statement, his hybrid question and his other question, and also in understanding Jesus' answers. Because keeping with the pattern of how Jesus interacts with the Jews, he is continually referencing the Old Testament in regards to himself and referencing the Old Testament in regards to his teaching. What he's saying is, I'm not something brand new. I am the one prophesied in the Old Testament, and the message that I'm telling you is not some sort of new gospel. It is the same message of the Old Testament. I want to pause here for just a minute to draw an application into your life, friends. If you've ever thought that the Old Testament was irrelevant... And so you'll just be, I mean, there, there's a big teaching out there that I'm a New Testament Christian, so the Old Testament's irrelevant. You could be, you couldn't be farther from the truth. You can't understand the New Testament without the Old Testament. You can't understand what this is all about. The New Testament is a Jewish book written to Jews who knew the Old Testament and lived the Old Testament. And that's one of my goals to show you in chapter 3, is that if you don't know your Old Testament, you can't fully understand your New Testament. My, my wife and I are listening through the Bible this year. I've referenced this a couple times. Listening through the Bible in a, uh, in a modern version uh, chronologically. And we're listening right now, we're in the Old Testament, and we're in 1st and Kings, 1st and Chronicles, uh, Jonah, that, that time period. And, um, and it's just fascinating to listen and to hear the same message over and over again. And again, if you don't listen carefully or read carefully, you might miss it, but it's all through the Old Testament, as I showed you in Ezekiel. And so do not neglect your Old Testament. Yes, we live in the New Testament age, and so the primary teaching that you will hear from the pulpit is going to be found in a New Testament context, but that doesn't mean that we don't preach from the Old Testament. We do much, and you need to read it, and you need to know it to see the truth that's revealed to us. Because in the, Old Testament, in the New Testament, there are so many allusions. Just, just quickly, turn back to John chapter 1. I'll give you one. And if you weren't here for the beginning of my series on John, I would encourage you to go back and to listen to the very first message. Because when you look at the book of John, there is an assumption that is made in John 1.1. What are the first three words of John 1.1? In the beginning. And on purpose, John is using the first three words of Genesis 1.1 to tie your attention to the truth that Jesus is the creator. Can you understand John 1.1 1, 1 without seeing that? Yes. But do you understand John 1.1 1, 1, 1 so much more when you see that connection? 
Yes. And so I try to do everything I can in my, in my preaching and in my teaching to pull you from the Old Testament into the New Testament and sometimes push you from the New Testament back into the Old Testament to see that it's one Scripture. So the sinner's identity is that he is a sign seeker, he's a teacher, and he is a law lover. Let's look at the sinner's question. I named it the sinner's question because it really is a question that's given here, although it's not really given as a question. We have those in our lives all the time, right? Um, This meal is not my favorite. You know, what's the question? Would you mind making something different next time? You know, and so there's a statement that's given here that that is should be phrased as a question because Jesus actually answers the question that he should have asked. Let's look at verse two. This man, Nicodemus, came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher, come from God. For no one can do these signs unless God is with him. Now let's pause for just a second. Nicodemus does not ask, as the Philippian jailer does, what must I do to be saved? Nicodemus doesn't know that he's lost yet. And I think a lot of people will will approach this passage and they'll put words into Nicodemus' mouth And say, Nicodemus is asking the question, what must I do to be saved? No, Jesus is looking at him later and saying, you must be born again. Nicodemus doesn't even know that. He should, but he doesn't. And so he's not approaching Jesus saying, Master, teach me, what must I do to be saved? That's not the statement here. He's saying, teacher, Jesus, rabbi, I know you're from God. I've seen what you're, what you're doing. I've seen the signs. Let's look at this verse carefully. First of all, he came by night. What does this mean? It means that he did not come when the sun was shining. That's what he came by night means. Some people will say, ooh, his soul was dark. And so was the night. And that could be true. Some will even will wage the, the, the guess that he came because he was ashamed. Could be the case. I think if John wanted us to make that conclusion, he would have given us that information. It could be that Jesus was busy during the day. And so was Jesus healing, doing signs, teaching. And the only time he could talk to Jesus was by night when Jesus actually had time. It could be a reference to Nicodemus spending an exorbitant amount of time with Jesus. He came by night when everyone was at home. And I mean, if you want to talk to me, like, hey, I'd love to have a conversation. Can I come over at 1 o'clock on Tuesday? I'm going to say, I got news for you. I'd love to talk to you at 1 o'clock on Tuesday, but if you really want to have a conversation, maybe we need to schedule coffee during our lunch hour, or maybe we need to spend some time together in the evening where we can actually talk. It could be that reason. We don't know. So we, what we don't want to do is, is to read into Nicodemus all of these emotions and all of these motivations that may not be there. They might be, but they might not be. So we're not going to let those 
those motivations that we could read into the text tell us everything about this text. So, what does it mean that he came by night? It means that he didn't come during the day. Uh, Rabbi, he says. Rabbi, very important. Why is it important that Nick, I told you we're going to go slow. We're going really slow, right? Why is it important that Nicodemus calls Jesus rabbi? What does rabbi mean? Rabbi means teacher. She raised her hand. I love that. She's thinking. Don't be embarrassed. That was awesome. What is it? Why is it important? Why is it important? You should be thinking. I ask these questions so you think. Why is it important that the teacher of Israel refers to Jesus as teacher? This is huge. And if you were a Jew, you would say, Nicodemus called him what? It's important because with this one statement in title, Nicodemus is recognizing that Jesus has some kind of information that Nicodemus doesn't have. He's coming to him as a teacher. He's coming to him and saying, I've seen the signs that you're doing. He's confused. You're from God. You know, I don't, I don't remember reading about you in the Old Testament. What in the world are you talking about? Teach me. He's coming as a student and aligning himself under Jesus. This is not a title of faith. This is a title of, of the teacher recognizing that he needs to learn something from Jesus. It's also a, a statement of humility, believe it or not. Now think about it. Jesus had no formal training in teaching. He had no credentials. What did Paul say? A student of Gamaliel. A Hebrew of the Hebrews. As touching the law of Pharisee. Jesus had none of that. And so here's Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, a ruler of the Jews, coming to a carpenter and calling him rabbi. It's an amazing statement. He is approaching him with respect and honor. That's why we know, or, or, or I shouldn't say we know, I would, I would assume that his statement in verse 4, when he says, what am I going to do? Go back. It's actually a very um, graphic and a little bit inappropriate statement. Literally what he tells Jesus, what am I supposed to do? Go up on my mom's birth canal and come out again? I don't think he's being sarcastic. I think he's flabbergasted. I think he's like, I I don't understand what you're talking about. Some people will take that as as sarcastically making a statement to try to jab Jesus. I don't think so. Because when he comes to this untrained carpenter, he calls him rabbi. And he addresses Jesus in this way. I have a note in my tech, in my notes. Um, We won't pause here for a long amount of time. But friends, you can tell a lot about a person by how they refer to Jesus. Please be reverent in, your, in how you refer to God. I would encourage you to look at the incredible contrast in Luke 23 uh, in the way that the thieves that hung beside Christ referred to him. And it's staggering to see one who is hardened and, and dismissive in regards to Jesus and the other who, who looks at him uh, in essence, with love and respect, and, and is, is called a Christian, is called to be a believer. He calls him rabbi, and then he recognizes <clears throat> to Jesus, he recognizes that Jesus has come from God. 
No doubt the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus lasted for hours and hours. If I had to wager a guess. I mean, if you read through this conversation, it may, make you, may take you two minutes if you read it in a conversational tone. Nicodemus didn't travel all the way to see Jesus to have a two-minute conversation and just walk away. So he's coming and he's asking questions. But John is drawing our attention to a very specific statement that he makes in the core of the conversation or what God wants us to know happened in the conversation with Nicodemus. And we see the statement, you are a teacher come from God. We know this. For no one can do these signs unless God is with him. It's interesting that he doesn't say, I know you're a teacher come from God. He references we. It's almost as if the Sanhedrin has been gathering together and trying to figure out what to do with Jesus. What are we going to do with this guy? He just cleansed the temple. And, and the, John the Baptist, who everybody recognizes as a prophet, is pointing people to him. And we've been discussing as to what we're going to do, and we're not quite sure what we're going to do with him yet. Because we can't say he's, he's from God publicly or, or endorsing him but we can't say he's not from God because it'll be a, a riot will ensue because it's obvious he's healing people, he's, he's healing the blind, he's, he, he's forgiving sins. And so there's this discussion going on with the Sanhedrin. And I think we can see, um, I think we, we have a little bit of time. If you want to turn over to Acts chapter 5, turn there just a few pages over. If not, listen carefully. I think we have a little bit of a picture into these conversations with the Sanhedrin and, and with these rulers of the Jews and what these conversations looked like in Acts chapter 5, okay? So in Acts chapter 5, the disciples, Jesus is, is ascended into heaven. The disciples are going around teaching about Jesus. And they're pulled in front of the, the council, the Sanhedrin. And Gamaliel, who is one of the most respected teachers in all of Israel, says something fascinating. Look at verse 34 in Acts chapter 5. If you're not turned there, just listen carefully. Verse 34. But a Pharisee of the, in the council, the Sanhedrin, named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, not the teacher, but a teacher, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. Take these rambunctious disciples of the man Jesus and take him outside so we can talk. So now we get a little glimpse behind the, the, the door. We're like putting a glass to the door and listening to what they say. And here's what they say. He said to the council, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutius rose up claiming to be somebody and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed and all who followed him were dismissed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, Listen to this, it's fascinating. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this, for if this plan or this undertaking is from, of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. It's fascinating, isn't it? Here's the Sanhedrin, and they're saying, Gamaliel who says, you guys need to be really careful. You need to be really careful. You need to watch and see what happens because if this takes off, this is from God and we may have just made a massive mistake. Be careful because if this 
is from God, you're going to be found opposing God. And I think, and this is where, again, I'll step off from the pole, but here's what I think. And you can disagree with me, and we'll find out who's right in heaven, right? I think, Nicod, this is what's going on in Nicodemus' heart as they're talking, as they're talking with the Sanhedrin. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And Nicodemus says, I don't know what we're going to do. Maybe he tells him, I'll go ask him tonight, right? We'll get coffee after dinner. And so he comes to Jesus by night, and, he, and he's asking Jesus these questions. And in essence, what he's saying is, what he's saying is, I don't understand. I don't understand. I'm looking. I see the signs. But I don't understand. I, I see the signs you're doing. I know you come from God, but the picture, the, the puzzle hasn't come together in my mind. I don't, I don't get it. But I'm going to watch. I'm going to see but I don't understand. So to that statement, let's rephrase it this way. Let's assume that Nicodemus is asking Jesus to help him understand what's happening. Okay, I think that's a a fair assumption here. That he's asking Jesus questions so that Jesus can help him understand what's happening. And Jesus does not explain right away. This is very important to understand. Jesus doesn't run, if we're not careful, and we haven't, I mean, how many of you have read, have knew that verse 8 was even in John 3? The wind blows where it wishes. You hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from, where it goes. Here is everyone who's born with the Spirit. How many of you read that and were like, oh, I didn't know that was in John 3. But you knew John 3.16 was there. You knew the bronze serpent was there. You knew Nicodemus was asking questions because we have to go in order and we have to go carefully. And Jesus doesn't tell him exactly what to do because Nicodemus can't do anything. He's already done more than his fair share. This is what you have to see about John 3. Some people will look at John 3 and they'll say, John 3 tells you how to be saved. But John 3 doesn't. John 3 tells you how God saves you. Nicodemus has already done more than enough. This is not a how-to handbook that if you do 1, 2, and 3, you're going to get heaven. Because Nicodemus has already done 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, all the way down, right? If you think that this chapter is about what you can do to be saved, you've already missed it. Because Nicodemus says, help me understand. And what does Jesus say? Unless one is born again, he cannot understand. Whoa. Unless. Nicodemus, you're a hopeless case. You're a hopeless case. Because unless you're born again, you will never see the kingdom of God. You cannot. It's not like you're almost there. It's not like you have a glimpse behind the curtain. But unless something happens to you that you have no control over, listen carefully, unless you are recreated, you can't see the kingdom of God. So let's pull this apart and see the Savior's answer. He begins with truly, truly. This is a statement of truth. Listen carefully. Of all the truth, this is what you need. 
John is the only gospel writer who, used this, who uses this phrase. And he uses it over and over and over and over again. Because his point is that you would know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And so he uses it over and over again. Truly, truly, listen carefully. Friend, if you miss everything, don't miss this. Because your eternity might be at stake. You may have prayed a prayer and thought that your prayer earned you God. You may have attended community for the last 20 years and thought that since you've been here, you're a good person and God loves you because of your church attendance. You may have been baptized and thought that somehow that water washed your sins away. And so you need to listen. Truly, truly, listen carefully. Unless you have been rebirthed, recreated, regenerated by God you can't even understand you cannot see the kingdom of God truly truly born again born from above Nicodemus is saying I see this I see this I see this but I don't understand how you, you come from God and you're teaching and you're doing all these signs. And Jesus says, well, unless you've been born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. You see signs. You see a man who fixes his hand, but all you see is a hand. But those who've been born again see God. I raise a man who's lame. And those who follow me for signs get so excited because they have illnesses. They want changed too. But those who've been rebirthed, those who've had a heart of flesh given to them. In faith, they see God. Born again, what does this word born again means? It's very common in our culture today, less common than it used to be. Born, being, being born again really wasn't a, a common phrase to describe Christians as far as I can tell until the 1970s when Jimmy Carter was campaigning for president and he referred to himself as a born-again Christian. And it was at that point, I think it was in 76, when he did that. Um, but when he referred to himself, I'm not saying whether or not he was, only God knows that, but when he referred to himself as a born-again Christian, that phrase caught on. And, and, and so it's become very popular, more, more popular a while ago, maybe 10, 15 years ago, 20 years ago than it is today. But this phrase, born again, is often used, but very rarely understood by people. Um, when we say uh, born again Christian, some people may look at you and say, oh, okay, that means that um, you need to get your life together. You were in a mess. And so when you got saved, God, he rebirthed you into being a new person. And, and, and that may be a true statement, but that has nothing to do with what born again means. Some people link born again to like hyper-emotional people, right? Like, I'm a born again believer, woo, you know, type thing. And it's like snakes and blood and all this kind of stuff, and we're born again, you know? And so if you say, are you, and it's actually more that way today than it was 20 or 30 years ago. Some of you, I just woke you up when I shouted like that. Uh, but, um, but, you know, you, you, we need to be careful to refer to ourselves as, as what, 
you know, what people understand. I'm not saying don't use the word born again. Use it. But just know that when you use it, most people are going to misunderstand it. And if you say, yeah, I'm a born again Christian, they're going to be like, whoa, you got snakes in your church? You know, all this kind of stuff. Right? What does the word born again mean? The word born again literally means re-birthed. It means to come into existence again. It's the word that means to come into being, but to come into being in, in, in a way that is, that, that is new. In other words, you were born, but you need that same event to happen, like your mom brought you into this world, God has to bring you into his kingdom. Like God has to usher you in. The, this, this theological term that you may hear referenced a lot is the word re generation. The word re means again. The word generate, to come into being. So regeneration. And so being born again means to be regenerated. It means that God breathes life into you. But it's super fascinating because the word born again can also mean born from above. It's the same word. And John wants you to see both. How do we know that? Well, because Jesus and Nicodemus are speaking in Aramaic, and in Aramaic, there's not a word that means both of those, but there is in Greek. And so Jesus said, born again, and that's obvious because of Nicodemus's flabbergasted, kind of gross response. But John wants you to see that it's, it's not a birth that you can generate or that comes from anything but from God. Born from above. Born again from God. The source is from God. In order to see the kingdom of God, you must be given new life. What does it mean that he cannot see the kingdom of God? You can see, Nicodemus, you can see these works that I've done, but you can't see the kingdom of God. Unlike the other gospel writers, John doesn't put a big emphasis on the kingdom of God. In fact, this is the only time that uh, the phrase kingdom of God is used in the gospel of John. There's another um, place in chapter 18 where Jesus refers to his kingdom, my kingdom. So that's more than likely a reference to the kingdom of God. But it's not a massive reference in John, so we need to understand what we're talking about here. Um, When Jesus uses the kingdom of God, Nicodemus is interpreting that as the coming kingdom. The kingdom that is to come where God will set up his physical kingdom and spiritual kingdom inside of all to rule on this earth. But actually what Jesus is referencing, as we'll see more in the next couple of weeks, he's referencing a spiritual kingdom. He's referencing... Um, the true life and the spiritual realm that God presides over. In general, whenever you see the kingdom of God, you need to think about God's sovereignty, God's rule, God's control, and then that's evidenced in, in different ages in, in the way that was evidenced. God's kingdom is different in the Garden of Eden pre-fall than it is today, and we'll get into more of that later, but what Jesus is referencing here is that God is in control over the spiritual realm of of salvation of conversion and so jesus is telling nicodemus you can't even see what's really happening here unless you have life so when we walk away from verses one through three here's what i want you to see 
access into this spiritual kingdom of God in which all believers are, are members of God's kingdom. That does not come through anything you can do. You have the guy who has done everything. And Jesus says, you must be born again. And then in John 4, this is the reason the, the contrast is so fascinating. In John 4, the message is, you need to be rebirthed no matter what you've done. Whether you've done it all good or you've done every sin you could ever imagine. You need the same life, the same gift from God. What does he use in John 4? Living water. What does he say in John 3? You need to be rebirthed, reborn. Let me just give you a, co a couple closing applications here. Every person is in need of the new birth. What are some implications of us being reborn by God? Well, two things that it can't mean. Being born again cannot mean that you're entering into some sort of relationship of moral structure or religious conformity. In other words, when you're saved, you are not entering in some sort of system that tries to structure your life around morals and religious conformity. Why? Because that's exactly what Nicodemus was already involved in. And Jesus says, you don't even understand because you need something totally different. So if you're here and you're not a Christian and you think that being a Christian means that you become a part of something that's going to call you to religious conformity and moral obligation, you are wrong. You are being called by God into a relationship with Jesus Christ and those who are rebirthed, yes, their lives take on certain characteristics as Jesus's did. But it's not a system of conformity. The other thing that it cannot mean is it cannot mean that you're being born again by something other than Jesus because Nicodemus had the religion down and their salvation in no other name other than Jesus Christ. Christ. So being born again means that you have been radically recreated. You've not just been improved. You've not been renovated. You're not just a better version of yourself. You are a different person. And some of you have that testimony that people look at your life post-regeneration and they go, you are a different person. You're not Joe 2.0. You're different. Who you were is gone, and you have been recreated into something new. That's what Jesus is saying Nicodemus needs, a recreation. Secondly, being born again means that you have a new identity, a new identity. It means you have been radically recreated. Secondly, this could be a message in and of itself. It means that you have a new identity. John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. But all who did receive him, who believed on his name, he gave the right to become what? Children of God. You are born into God's family. You have family problems? Don't we all? You got family problems? Well, friend, when you're born, you're born to a new family. Are you embarrassed of your past? You have a new identity. You have an identity in Christ. You have a right to be born. You have a right to be called a child of God. Why? Because you did everything right? No. Who were born, verse 13 of chapter 1, not of, blo not of blood, 
nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. You were born of God. And then thirdly, and this is fascinating, and if you have discussions around the lunch table about the message, maybe this would be worthy of your discussion. Being born again means that you have new sight. What did Jesus say? Unless you've been born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Um, Tim Keller calls this, I think, I think he calls it new sensations or new sensibilities. And what he means by that and what, what Jesus means by this, when you see the kingdom of God, it means that you view life differently. That the Bible that made no sense all of a sudden is alive. That you sit in a message and you tune out and you go, what in the world is that weirdo talking about? And then you go, whoa. Your heart, because you have a new heart, right? It resonates with truth. It's convicted by sin. But, but when truth is present, it resonates with truth. When you sing hymns like only a holy God, like and can it be that wonderful, timeless hymn, and can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? when you get to that part where you say, my chains fell off. My heart was free. I couldn't help it. My hand went up just a little bit, right over here. Why? Because you have new sight. Because, because everything's different now. You see yourself differently. You see your sin differently. You see the world differently. You see the word differently. You say, Joe, I don't know what that's like. Then you need to be born again. The Holy Spirit needs to give you life. You guys remember The Wizard of Oz? That great old film that's a whole lot more creepy than you thought it was when you go back and you watch it again. She steps out. I'm not comparing heaven to the land of Oz at all, right? But she steps out and everything turns to color. And she can see. You know, I think some of you may have been regenerated in a moment and you didn't even recognize it till you look back. Because there's a moment when you didn't know and then you knew. There's a moment when you couldn't see and then you saw. There's a moment when you didn't even understand. Some preacher said, believe. And you're like, I don't even know what you're talking about. I don't know how to do that. He said, turn to Jesus. And you're like, how do I do that? And then all of a sudden, there was this moment when you saw. When you were changed. Does it mean you're perfect? No. But that's what being born again means. It means that you've had life breathed into you. That that moment of new life comes from God and your life turns to full color. And you see the scripture and you sing the songs and you go, God, I understand. I get it. You're the king of my life. You're the Lord of creation. 
And I believe in you with all my heart and all my soul and all my strength. And I'm turning from my sins and I turn to you. And I lay hold of Christ. And I find him to be my savior, my rescuer. Don't marvel that Jesus will say, you must be born again in order to see the kingdom of God. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for your truth and the understanding that you give in turning a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. Lord, thank you that we could read at the beginning of our service that prophecy in Ezekiel where Ezekiel prophesies and is rejected by Israel, but he prophesies there is coming a day when God will breathe life into that dead soul, when those bones will be raised to life, and the very breath of God, the Spirit of God, breathes life into his children. And for that day, in Ezekiel, for, for Ezekiel, he looked forward to that day for so many of those Israelites who were far from you. And yet, we can look back on those moments and see that that prophecy has come true in our lives. That those dead bones have lived and those dry bones are now fleshed and have the Spirit of God breathed into them. And I pray that we will be thankful for that moment and that if there's one here in which that has not happened, that through the power of the Word of God and the Holy Spirit that you would breathe life into their flesh and that they would breathe life into their heart and you would give them a heart of flesh and that they would turn to you and to you alone for salvation, that they would lay hold of Christ and that they would find forgiveness through you. 